0: Today, if you look at all these amazing brands, almost all of them, to a T, is multi-channel, right? None of them are single-channel. None of them only sell online or to sell. They sell everywhere their consumers are. And so what we're trying to do is is not only make sure the things you want to do right now are available and are robust and are world-class today, but also the stuff you may wanna do in years from now, whether it's AI-based commerce, or it's things in Web3, or it's all this, you know, uh, our augmented reality. We're working on those things now, not because people want them right now, but because we anticipate in
1: the future they may. From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. You just heard from Harley Finkelstein, an entrepreneur and innovator who's president of the e-commerce platform, Shopify. During today's episode, Harley speaks with our senior partner, Eric Roth, in the latest of our Committed Innovator series of conversations. Their discussion is essential listening for anyone interested in learning how to create and build a business that scales. Harley speaks with Eric about what it means to be an entrepreneur and why starting a side business makes sense, and how the t-shirt business that he started in college led directly to him serving as the president of Shopify. And a quick reminder, you can find other episodes in our innovation series via the link in today's show notes. And now, here's Eric.
2: So, Harley, welcome to the show. So pleased to have you with us today. Eric, great to be here. It's a great honor. So let's jump right into it. You're, by every stretch of the imagination and criteria, a true entrepreneur and innovator. Take us back to the beginning. How did you start creating companies, bringing things to the world from ideas?
0: I think there are two types of entrepreneurs generally. I think there's entrepreneurs by necessity, entrepreneurs basically that have no choice but to start a business to survive. And that's sort of like, that's my grandparents and and, and frankly, my father. Then there's sort of a different type of entrepreneur, which is entrepreneurship, uh, based from a passion perspective, something that they really want to do, and entrepreneurship is the vehicle to do so. And that was that's where I fall. When I was 13 years old, probably like you, I went to a lot of bar and bat mitzvahs, and I thought the coolest people at these bar and bat mitzvahs were the DJs. I mean, they were like magicians to me. They would take a crowd of 300 people sitting down eating, you know, rubber chicken dinner, and within 30 seconds there'd be a conga line, and I just thought that. Magic that they were able to create with music and their voice and energy was just the the coolest thing I'd ever seen, and I really wanted to be a DJ. But at 13 years old, I looked like I was eight years old. I had no DJ skills whatsoever. Nobody would hire me, and I had this wee crazy idea when I was I was when I was 13 to start my own DJ company and hire myself. And I think that was sort of the that was my introduction to entrepreneurship. As a tool to, as I mentioned, to survive, but also as a tool to solve problems like I want to be a DJ and no one's going to hire me. And so from early days of DJ
2: to your first scaled company,
0: what was the leap? So all throughout high school, I I wasn't really a jock. Um, I wasn't really involved in, in, in sort of the traditional extracurricular activities. I went to high school at a very large public high school in South Florida. And this DJ company that I had started, that was kind of what I did on nights and weekends. I would find interesting new areas of business. I would buy video games to sell to the bar mitzvah clients. I would look for new people to hire so I can expand the business. And so I was tinkering all throughout high school with this DJ company. And ultimately, it became less about the craft of DJing and more about the actual craft of entrepreneurship and business building. When I finished high school, I moved to Montreal, where I'm talking to you from today, and I went to McGill University. And Within the first couple weeks of school, this this is September 2001, uh, the markets got really bad. It wasn't exactly the greatest time uh, from an economic perspective, but it it was especially hard on my family. My my parents lost everything. and I ended up starting my second company in 2001, which was a t-shirt company, but this time, it wasn't about passion-based entrepreneurship it was entrepreneurship ne- based on necessity I had to I had to support my mom and two younger sisters my dad's no longer around I had to pay tuition and so I made I started making t-shirts for universities across Canada uh, and that was really the first company that I had built that had any real scale and I think that's really where entrepreneurship for me transition from, okay, this is this cool thing that's going to be a part of my life to, no, this is my life. The idea that entrepreneurship can save my life and save my family's life, this is what I want to commit to. And I ran that t-shirt business all throughout college and then ended up going to law school in 2005, not to become a lawyer, funny enough, but to become a better entrepreneur. A mentor of mine had this idea that law school would be like finishing school for entrepreneurship. And he was right. And I moved to Ottawa in 2005. uh, And that's when I met Toby, the founder of Shopify. And ended up becoming one of the first customers of that of that product. Uh, I was going to say then. your
2: business sounds yeah. like one of the first customers for Shopify. It almost sounds like the t shirt business is exactly the kind of of at least early in the day, not not today, where Shopify has become a, a massive platform. But early in the day, could have been the 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 target market for some of the the early accounts on the platform. Is that is that a fair a fair assessment?
0: It, it, it was I, when I when I moved to when I went to law school. Um, unlike undergrad. I couldn't just skip class and show up and sell t-shirts. I needed a a business that ran concurrently and virtually while I was in class. And so the idea of of an online retailer uh, was very compelling. And I met Toby at a a local startup meetup in 2005. And he was just transitioning from selling snowboards on the internet to selling the software that he'd built to sell those snowboards itself. And uh, a lot of people started asking him if they can use that software to sell their own products. And I was one of those people. And uh, I was store 136 on Shopify. We now have millions of stores, but I was store 136. And I sold my t-shirts on Shopify uh, for all of uh, law school and business school. So sounds like
2: you found a valuable problem to solve in the marketplace. Small merchants didn't have a great alternative, I think it's fair to say, to be successful and scale their businesses. Although I'm sure some listeners are saying, well, wait a minute, hold on. There's another company out there that claims to do some version of this. How in a world where they existed, and it was a different company back then than what it is now, did you say, look, there's a juggernaut emerging called Amazon, but we think there's a a market for something different? How do you and Toby sort of go through that calculus and then think about what Shopify needs to do and deliver in order to succeed?
0: There are two fundamental ways that you can sell a product on the internet. That's the case today, and that was certainly the case in 2005. There are variations of it, but there are two general practices. The first practice is retail, direct to consumer, and the second practice is wholesale, selling through a marketplace or a third-party retailer. And the idea—remember, this is 2005. So, I mean, uh, at this point, you had a couple big marketplaces. You had, you know, Amazon. You think you had Etsy at that point, and it was it was kind of new then and, and and that was an option if you wanted to sell your product your widget to a consumer an end consumer the problem with that model in particular is that utilizing that model effectively meant that you had no direct relationship with the end consumer and in fact that actually was not your customer. You were renting customers from that marketplace or retailer or or, or what have you. So if you want to get, if, if your only goal is to sell as much volume as possible and you don't care about having a relationship the a consumer, you don't care about a brand, you don't care about building your own business with your own customer base, then that is a great option. But for many, many people, they want to have a direct relationship with their end, with the end consumer. They want to be able to sell re- directly to the end consumer. And they don't want to rent customers. They want to own their customer base. They want to have all the information that comes along with that. And prior to Shopify, prior to 2005, the only way to create a, a beautiful, uh, scalable, direct to consumer retailer online was to spend somewhere in the neighborhoods, no exaggeration, but a million dollars you had all these large enterprises that would build you an online store. The idea that a small business could actually build a beautiful, scalable online store that looks great, that functions well and sell to the consumer, that was simply out of reach. And so the reason that Shopify, I think, is compelling now, but was was, was also very compelling in 2005 was this was sort of the first time ever that a small business was able to get the access to software and scalability that traditionally only the biggest companies could get, and they can build a real direct-to-consumer business. And that's not, not to say the market there's not a, there's not a place for the marketplaces. Absolutely there there are.
2: Yeah. So the brand and the personal connection to the brand, which a lot of marketers find as, you know, critically important as you as you scale a business, is creating that that interconnection, that interaction with their brand. And so Shopify effectively, if, if I summarize what you said, is a platform that allows the business owner to create that relationship with their end consumer or end customer. In a way that you can't do at the volume marketplaces, and and so, if that's the case, then the insight was was differentiated, right? It, it was different than anywhere else. And then the question in my mind becomes, how did you scale it, right? So was it a? Because a lot of the things that we've learned through entrepreneurship innovation is the go to market model matters. And in digital, the economics and things are a little different. But how do you go from store? What was it? Uh, one thirty seven. You were one thirty seven. 136, excuse me, to millions and billions um, and and, and sort of get the economics and the business model
0: right. First of all, getting the basics right is very important. So the idea that you can go to Shopify and in an hour or two, you can set up this beautiful online store that looks uniquely connected to your brand, where the inventory functions well, where the checkout works well, you know, you get a merchant account. Um, automatically provision for you when you're getting set up. The fact that you can get something up and running very quickly that also can scale to many billions of dollars, that was very important. So I think fundamentally what what gave, it, what gave us our start is that there was a real sophistication and a real robustness to the infrastructure of the Shopify product. And the way that I, I can sort of prove that to you is that some of those stores that got their start in 2007, 2008, 2010 some of those stores not only are still on Shopify today, but they are now multi-billion dollar companies. These are companies that start at their mom's kitchen table that are now the incumbents in their actual vertical, and they've scaled the entirety of their business life on Shopify. So in the early days, we just got the basics right. We made it really easy to get up and running and get started. And then as businesses on Shopify scaled, we made sure that there was no ceiling in terms of what they could do on the platform. If they needed capital, we created a capital business. If they needed shipping or fulfillment, we helped them with that. If they needed to do something like payments or accept different um, multiple payment methods, you, you're able to do that as well. If they want to sell in-store in a physical location, or they want to cross-sell on Instagram or TikTok or Google, all of, everything that they want to do, they can do. So with Shopify. So we built something that made it really easy to get started, but also was incredibly scalable. And it allowed these brands to think about, okay, this is a partner that I can have that is going to future-proof my business indefinitely in the long run. And I think that's the reason why we built a lot of early trust with these small businesses. And as they became big, we maintained that trust, which led to other existing large businesses eventually migrating to Shopify as well. So,
2: So one of the things that I have to believe is true is the culture inside Shopify is entrepreneurial and innovative in order to continue to evolve the model create a a great home for these brands and allow them to scale. Can you talk to us a little bit about what it's like to be inside Shopify? What's the culture like and how did you create it, more importantly?
0: Look, Shopify is a company that is, um, this is a company for entrepreneurs built by entrepreneurs. The vast majority of people at Shopify, we're about 10,000 people today um, across, you know, many, many countries. The vast majority of people that work at Shopify today are either entrepreneurs themselves or very deeply connected to entrepreneurship, either their family or their friends or they themselves, you know, you know, has started a business.
2: Do, do you look for like that? Do you look for that? And it's a hiring criteria. Yeah,
0: v- very much so. Um, and, and you can you can you can seek that out a couple different ways. I mean, obviously, if you have a Shopify business or you're, you have a business to show us that that really does help, obviously, provide. Uh, a lot of guidance on whether this particular you know candidate so uh, the is, best is on resume
2: for Shopify is start a business first and then you might get a job. okay. hell yeah, <laughs> def- definitely
0: and 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 it's not because you started a business, you you know how to you know in- integrate with uh, you know, payment gateway or you understand manufacturing or production or supply chain. It's because fundamentally, there is this thing about entrepreneurship that is unique to the practice of building when you're responsible for for other people's you know when you're responsible for a payroll you're responsible for people's livelihoods that you know people that work for you it changes your entire dna i mean it really does change the way you do things entrepreneurship fundamentally is is all about resourcefulness so if you've you've gone through that journey of being an entrepreneur you are inherently going to be resourceful which means you are inherently going to bring that resourcefulness to shopify and so one is we try to recruit and, and retain people that are deeply connected or themselves are, are entrepreneurs. That's the first thing. The second thing is Shopify is a place with ruthless prioritization, which we want people to... Uh, here's a good example. We want people shipping as opposed to meeting. And so this in January, we have this thing, we, we call it chaos monkey, but we basically cleared everyone's calendar when they got back from winter break, like I think January 3rd. So people came back and their calendars were empty, and we. Del- I think we deleted something like twelve thousand recurring meetings. And actually, if you quantify that, this is kind of neat. If you quantify that over an hourly basis, we deleted three hundred and twenty-two thousand hours of meetings. That is thirty-six years of meetings. Now, that's not to say that some of those meetings were important. Were not important. Some of them may have been we gave a sort of a cool off period and people were able to add those back. But we're always trying to think about ways for us to create, like it's like altitude training. The the chaos monkey, uh, the chaos monkey activity was altitude training. Now, most of the meetings that we deleted were not added back, which tells you and and, and suggests that they weren't that important in in the meanwhile. So why does that matter? It matters because the first part of what 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 I mentioned, we try to bring in people that are deeply entrepreneurial, Well, deeply entrepreneurial people, they want to work at a place where they have this ruthless prioritization, where they think about, you know, subtraction. They want to be really innovative. They want to pivot and they don't want to let their egos get in the way. And so we've we've brought in those types of people and then we've created an environment for them to do their best work. And many people at Shopify would say that they are doing their life's work at Shopify. And that is really unique for a company of our size.
2: That's incredible. So let's talk about the ruthless prioritization, because having worked with many, many organizations, some of which are on your platform they really struggle with making portfolio decisions and ruthless prioritization. In fact, you know, some of the jokes are we put metrics in place sometimes to say, you know, we're going to just track how many times you say no. And and it's hard to get even some runs on the board. So, how does that how do you inculcate that into the culture so that that ruthless prioritization is operationalized? And and that's some big words. Maybe it's just like,
0: look, how do you help people say no and and feel okay with it? When you subtract or you reduce scope, what you end up doing is every time you say no to something, it means you are providing yourself with an opportunity to find a better idea. Whereas every time you say yes to something, you are basically locking out every other idea that may come to the table. And so there are times where we have a great idea and we think, okay, this is really going to add a lot of value. And it will add a lot of value to some people some of the time. But it, unless it unlocks true value for most merchants most of the time, it's probably not something we're going to do. And, and, and then what we are able to do it to, to supplement that is we can go to we have this massive um, ecosystem community of, of third party app developers. The app store, the Shopify app store, is probably one of the most robust developer ecosystems on the planet. That is the perfect place. For third parties to build functionality for Shopify merchants that some people need most of the time, or most need some of the time. But if most people need something most of the time, we're going to build it ourselves because we believe it's going to be. It, it has to be like world class. It has to be super. Um, you know, it, it has to be out of the box, perfect. So we we think about our business and our product, and even the markets we go into in that type of way. Let me give you an example on the on the go to market side. For a long time. I mentioned that some of the stores on Shopify, the the ones that were sort of these homegrown success stories, they're now the largest some of the largest brands on the planet and they've scaled really well. Well, w- once that started happening, there was this inherent desire for us to move up market. Okay, let's just go and get much larger companies to to use Shopify. But we felt that we weren't ready for that. And part of it was we didn't really understand the enterprise market really, really well, the way they buy, the way they do procurement, integrating with their existing systems like ERP systems and inventory systems. And so what we did was we use this opportunity where we watched these homegrown stories get really big to do a deeper dive on, okay, how do these massive brands work at scale? And then once we felt like, okay, we are ready now to, to compete for their business. And frankly, we deserve the right to win their business. That's when we went to bring on, you know, these massive brands. A lot of companies do it the reverse way. They go to market first, but the product is just not ready. And so if there's any criticism of Shopify that I would provide is that sometimes we overbuild things, but part of it is because the business that we're in effectively runs the entire business for our merchants, for, the, for our customers, and so if, sh- if your blog platform goes down, it's unfortunate, but you're still going to live t- another day. If your retail operating system, which is the role we play in the lives of these millions of stores, goes down, you don't make money. Your business is going to be in jeopardy, and so we take that responsibility very, very seriously. So, so in- let me
2: let me let me push you on this then, because now now you're starting. I'm going to sound it's going to sound silly, but you're starting to sound like a bank. Right. Our ATMs must transact. And what we've learned about the world of institutions like that, successful, very successful organizations, that the core all of a sudden has to deliver all the time. That innovation gets stifled. I'm not suggesting that's the case for Shopify. And, and you know, you have your ecosystem of developers, which probably pick up a lot of the slack, which by the way, also looks like the telecommunications industry historically like everything got pushed out to the edge of the network. But how do you maintain, uh, well, two two questions. One, how do you make sure you're making the right calls in valuing what is valuable to everybody versus not? Because that's a hard thing to do for a lot of organizations is figure out, well, what what is it really worth? You know, Is it really something for everyone that's going to be valuable or not? And then secondly, as you make those decisions, how do you make sure you're not pushing out some of those seemingly small ideas, which could be the next big ideas, and just defending the core, because by the way, it's successful, you're doing really well, and you need to make sure that your brands that are on your platform don't I- incur
0: any problems. So here's something that most people don't understand about Shopify, but I think it, it it speaks volumes. If you were to pretend that Shopify was a single retailer, you were to aggregate all our stores, let's just use the US, uh, in the US, for example, we would be the second largest online retailer in America after Amazon. So why is that important? It's important because If you are the second largest retailer in America, you are entitled to incredible economies of scale. So shipping rates, for example, or credit card transaction rates, for example, or rates on on borrowing of capital. You get all this massive economies of scale. Well, what we're able to do because we're the platform for these millions of stores is that Rather than keeping those economies of scale for ourselves, we're actually able to disseminate them to all these small businesses so that when you were a small business and you're just getting started on Shopify, again, you're at a coffee shop or you're at your home, home office, you actually are getting the rates that 10 years ago at the biggest companies on the planet were getting. So what we're trying to do for the smaller brands, for the, new, for the aspiring new entrepreneurs is level the playing field so they have a better chance of success. That's sort of the first bucket. The second bucket is once they get really big or once larger brands, we also you know, need to figure out what do they need as they grow as well. Now, here's the cool part. Even though you are running these massive businesses and brands at scale, you also want to be entrepreneurial and and in so much that when you hear that Instagram now allows commerce to happen right on the platform or you see things like live shopping on YouTube or you see that TikTok is now embedding a checkout button inside of TikTok you want to be able to do so and so our job if we want to if we want to requalify for the right to be the retail operating system for all these brands is that whatever they want to do the answer is yes with Shopify. Either we do it ourselves because you know, we think it's that important, or we leverage our APIs and our third-party ecosystem. But there should never be something that you want to do in commerce or retail on Shopify that where we say that's impossible. And in some cases, on the IPO roadshow in 2015, we talked about this idea of omni-channel. Like you know, these brands are going to want to sell across every surface area where a consumer exists. And you sort of you saw a lot of eye rolling in 2015 on and, and the roadshow. Yeah, 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 but you guys are just e-commerce. Well, today, if you look at all these amazing brands, almost all of them to a T is multi-channel. Right? None of them are single-channel. None of them only sell online or to sell. They sell everywhere their consumers are. And so, what we're trying to do is is not only make sure the things you want to do right now are available and are robust and are world-class today but also the stuff you may want to do in years from now whether it's ai based commerce or it's things in web 3 or it's all this you know uh, our augmented reality we're working on those things now not because people want them right now but because we anticipate in the future they may and if we think in the future they may we have to make small bets now in order to qualify for that later so
2: should we stop talking about e-commerce I mean, is it just the wrong word? It, is, it doesn't matter anymore. To your point, it's all about- I don't, I just... don't, I,
0: I've don't. not referred to Shopify as an e-commerce company in probably four or five years. And I believe the brands that will be most successful in the future will be entirely channel agnostic. They're going to be focused on how to serve their customer best. And so when you see a TikTok with a checkout button, do you get nervous about that? Shopify is the commerce partner for all those platforms. And any new platform that pops up or any new functionality that pops up within the platform. So we've been integrated with Google Shopping and YouTube for many years, but you know, like now that there's something then there's like live shopping inside of Google or now that people can actually post products underneath the video on YouTube, that's all powered by Shopify. And so the key for us though is really to make sure that we are the first call that all of these surface areas make when they want to get into commerce. And more and more, because every major brand that all these th- that all these you know social media platforms and all these surface areas want to have integrated with them, they're all Shopify stores. So the thing I want, you said something in passing I want to just come back
2: to for a moment is you make a lot of small bets. So in order to do everything you just described, presumably there are little pockets of activity within Shopify that are already working on it. How do you nurture the small bet and make it relevant and and protect it so it doesn't get killed in the wake of something more important for the core? Because that is something that most companies do really struggle with. They'll look at all the small bets and go, oh, too small, not clear, can't focus there, fire over here, let's reallocate to this in the core. How how do you protect those? And what are you doing inside Shopify to do that?
0: I mean, there are some times where, you know, a a leader literally has to put the proverbial their proverbial arms around the little sapling tree and say, I am protecting this tree because one day it may grow. And, and we do a lot of that, but that goes back to the conversation earlier, Eric, around having entrepreneurial people. There are deeply passionate people who believe like, let's, let's just use AI because it seems like AI is everywhere right now. Um, Obviously now everyone's talking AI, but we've been experimenting with AI for things like writing product descriptions For a very long time, knowing that at some point, AI is going to get so good that all you need to do is take a photograph of a particular product and the AI, the algorithm will write you the most amazing, highly converting uh, product description out there. Or augmented reality, right? There, we have a small team of people working on augmented reality. It's, it's not to say that everyone's going to use it, but we have a lot of furniture companies on Shopify who eventually are going to want to you know, use uh, augmented reality so you can place furniture around your apartment or around your house. That's exactly right. Another example is Web3. I mean, Web3, obviously last year was a big deal. Now maybe it's less spoken about, but for us, they're, they're, they're components of all of these massive trends that we think are incredibly valuable for commerce. So in Web3, for example, a lot of the stuff may not be that interesting. But for example, token-gated commerce, we think is super compelling. the The idea that you actually, with your token, with your NFT... You can get invited to a special Drake concert, or you can get invited to a special party with doodles, which is this great Web3 project, but only in order to get it, you absolutely have to use this particular NFT. That is a really cool thing. And so ultimately what we're trying to do is mine all these new technology to figure out how it may work, put together a very small team with very, you know, with with limitations. This team's not going to grow to be 30, 40 people unless it hits certain thresholds. And just be clear about that. Now, when it does hit that threshold, then we're going to, you know, we'll invest more. We'll add more resources, people, money, time to it. But for a long time, they have to have, we have to almost have these tiny little startups all throughout the company inside of Shopify. And by the way, that's an amazing recruiting device because people actually, like most great entrepreneurs that I know, they don't want to work in this massive corporate environment. Yeah, I'm sure
2: there's some people from corporate environments thinking, oh yeah, that sounds great for for you, digital native. Uh, but we can't. You can't write an org chart to do what you just said. So how how do you actually create the organizational model within Shopify
0: to enable everything you just described? Because the org chart shouldn't matter. First of all, I th- I think I think way too many companies overly rely on the org chart. I have I have like I have these um, even sort of in in my kind of world at Shopify. I have teams that report to me that are like three person teams and. They don't necessarily fit neatly into the org chart. And that's okay. Not not everything has to fit in an organized manner. You know, I I one thing that I think a lot about is there's a deep difference between founder-led companies and professionally managed companies. And Shopify very much is a founder-led company. So I think that there's sort of this founder mentality that you get, and you, you get it a lot easier when you actually have the, the founding team or the founder still at the company. But it allows you to say, I don't really care how this fits into the org chart. I'm not going to let the org chart dictate innovation. I'm not going to let the org chart dictate that, that. Like, if there's something that should exist, just have it roll up to me. Like, I, I I love this stuff. I you know I'm I'm already working. You know, I don't know seventy hours, eighty hours a week. I'm happy to work another hour if it's something really compelling. And now you get back to why do you work at these companies? And, that, I, and I know everyone talks about mission-driven and culture and all that stuff. But fundamentally, like you actually have to believe you can't put any you know posters on the wall with an eagle that says leadership and expect that people are going to find that to be compelling. Shopify's mission fun- it is at, a, at its core and obviously around the concept that more entrepreneurs means better things for the world. More entrepreneurs means more survival, more success, more independence, more problem-solving. So if you believe that entrepreneurship is important, Shopify is a great place to work. And when you come into the company, you're often surprised of how it operates with that speed and the flexibility given we're 10,000 people. So you said founder-led companies
2: are a really important component. Well, you are a founder. Once again, uh, we promised to come back to it. So Firebelly Tea, why? Why now? You don't have enough to do uh, running Shopify that you need to create a new account for Shopify?
0: I, I'm the growth strategy. Uh, no, it, it, the truth is, it's really fun. I mean, I can I, I can tell you a bunch of other reasons why, um, you know, and these are true during the pandemic. I was drinking way too much coffee. My anxiety was peaking. I needed an alternative. My best friend is a tea aficionado. He's like, hey, try this amazing green tea. Turns out I'd never had truly high-end, incredible green tea. And then I started giving it to other friends, and they're like, wow, this is amazing. Now I have an entire like group of friends and family members who don't drink Coffee afternoon, they drink green tea, and everyone seems to be operating at a at a super high level, and anxiety levels are reduced. and And so, part of it was this discovery that most people have never had truly incredible green tea before—matcha, sencha. There's a bunch of other uh, Japanese greens that we really love. So that was first. The second part was the last time I started a business was in 2006 or so, uh, which is the Shopify store. And in those days, like you know, let's just use growth, like funnels. Growth funnel in two thousand six for an online store was fundamentally just AdWords. That's all it was. It was like AdWords, the more you spent, the more you got. Whereas, like it's obvious now that's not the way it's done. It, you know, content marketing is important. Influencer marketing is important. Social media is important. Having the brand have its own persona, almost like it's a it's a human in itself, that matters more today. And so I felt that I was a little bit out of touch with how to build a modern business. And so the the you know, the Venn diagram overlap of this like okay, this tea is super cool. And also I want to start a new business and understand what it's like. It, it led to to me launching uh, firebellytea.com with um, with my best buddy during the pandemic. And it's been so fun. I mean, we are like, not not only are we learning, but we're I'm testing everything on Shopify. I'm testing Shopify audiences. I'm testing Shopify fulfillment. I'm testing all these integrations to social media platforms. For us, Instagram works well. TikTok doesn't work as well. But other weeks we put out a physical like, uh, travel mug for the tea. And TikTok works great. It's, it's so fascinating. And so while I think some people like to, you know, watch football on Sundays, uh, I'm tinkering on little businesses on Sundays with my friends.
2: Well, this has been amazing. So many things to take away from this conversation. Really appreciate your time. Really appreciate your insights. I, I'm hopeful that, that our listeners learned a lot from that. And thank you so much for for joining
0: us today. Thank you, Eric. Appreciate you having me on
1: many thanks to harley and eric for taking the time to share their thoughts with us today and thank you for joining us we hope you enjoyed the conversation you can find other episodes in our innovation series via the link in today's show notes and as always if you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast we encourage you to email us at itsr you can also share your ratings and reviews on your favorite podcast player with many thanks to everybody who's already done so. We really appreciate your comments and feedback and encourage you to keep them coming. If you enjoyed today's episode and you'd like to subscribe, just follow our weekly series on your favorite podcast player where you can also access our entire library of previous episodes. We also offer an Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page, available at mckinsey.com slash ITSR for Inside the Strategy Room, where you can easily search all of our prior podcasts across six major themes, including innovation, and also access written transcripts of those conversations. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest publications and insights, just sign up on our Practice Insights page at mckinsey.com SCF for Strategy and Corporate Finance, or follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy, or connect with us on LinkedIn at the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again next week inside the Strategy Room.